You're ready to be premature wow, all over again. Wow, that's, that's impressive. Quick, quick reset. Yeah. Quick reset. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Licking okay. gin balls. It's just going to be a vicious cycle. Who knew the job was pro bono? I was so high that um, I shit myself at some point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, get still here. Somebody, somebody, everybody mute. Goddamn, you're killing me. My SEAL Team 6 went to SEAL Team 12. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with punching above your weight. The fight you get better. Well, I don't know what's worse. You're a ginger or you've been vaccinated. You sit around and drink and solve the world's problems, right? Hey, let's go ahead and unwrap this present <laughs> so, uh, and let the I... debate begin. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It is another episode of A Spirited Debate. We are fortunate once again to have a guest in the studio with the Four Horsemen. Uh, you may know him. You may love him. His family actually founded the country of Italy. In case you didn't know, little fact. Uh, we are fortunate enough to once again have Andy Napoli in the studio with us to discuss today's latest topic. Uh, I'm not going to waste any time. Andy, thank you for being here. Thank Let's, you for having me back. I'm going to go ahead and touch on our topic in case you've been living under a fucking rock for the last week. Uh, Russia invaded Ukraine on or about the 21st of February and then launched a full-scale attack on the 24th. Uh, on the 21st, they, they actually went into two separatist areas and then on the 24th launched a full-scale attack. If you know, you've been following the news. That's what we're going to talk about today. We thought it was relevant, thought it was pertinent. But before we do that, obviously, how is everybody doing today? Oolong! Doing good. <laughs> is that like oolong tea? What how did, What was that? Uh, it's, it's actually like the uh, Romanian version of like... Who a victory. Oh, like, okay. Yes. There you go. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Uh, Andy, again, thank you for being here. Let's go ahead and jump into our drinks. I'm going to let you go first. Obviously, you're the guest on the show, so we'd love to know what did you bring to the show today? Sure. So I'm bringing, I brought in a, a, a can of uh, Polish beer. I couldn't find any Ukrainian beer. It's called Okusim, or I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it's, it, it is brewed and canned in uh, Poland. Uh, I had, uh, a long time ago, when I was a, a college student, uh, I worked part time at a liquor store and there was a large Polish community that, that would come in from a nearby factory uh, after their shift. And man, those dudes were some hard drinkers. Anyway, <laughs> they, they, I noticed that they, they brought they, they would often buy these tall boy cans uh, on their way home to get their their, their fix on. Uh, and I was like, well, if it works for these Polish factory workers, it'll work just fine for this conversation. There you go. All right. So beer. Hey, yes. nothing wrong with beer. I think the last time you were on the show, you also had beer. I know you were traveling uh, when you jumped on the show with us that last time. And I think you were having. Yeah, beer that was the well. Rittenhouse episode. Yes, you it were was. about to go. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. When are you going to come on the show for like a fun topic? Something lighthearted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess that's up to me, right? I got to remember to. <laughs> we'll blame you, Grinch. That, that's, that's how fair. we do. That's fair. Uh, I actually, as our latest convert in the mixed drink category, as you admitted to just recently that you listened to our episode about whiskeys and uh, that you do believe that a mixed drink can now have a very high caliber alcohol in it. You're okay with that. I decided that I was going with an old fashioned but I'm using Bland's. Okay. I have oh, not done this okay. previously, yeah, no, so fair, I'm going to give it a shot. Right. My ode to you is twofold. It is a old-fashioned mixed drink with Bland's, and my wife made it. Oh. <laughs> so. <laughs> I see what you did there. Yes. Uh, I know uh, Mrs. Grinch is famed for her making your drinks. 
for the show occasionally. So I thought I would have my wife. (laughs) I would have my wife make a drink. So she just made uh, it is a it's called a Lexardo old fashioned. So it's got the Lexardo cherries, um, some Angostura bitters uh, and then obviously Blanton's and then a little homemade Demerara sugar syrup. So nice. that's what I'm drinking. Nice. It, it nice. is an honor. It is an honor, sir. <laughs> that is actually really smooth. I bet. I have not had a mixed drink with Blanton yet. And I know you were kind of a holdout for, look, mixed drinks should not be using a high caliber spirit. But I did it. And it's actually pretty good. And of course, in light of today's topic, I did use the decanter that holds my Blanton's. And this is my big fuck you to Vladimir Putin <laughs> and my middle finger decanter <laughs> that I received as a gift from my daughter. And that's uh, what holds my Blanton. So that's what I am drinking. It is a Blanton's old fashioned. So it. Uh, it is quite delicious. That is my homage to you, Grinch. Uh, I, you're I, welcome. I heart you. I heart Cheers. you. <laughs> All right. Uh, Mac, what about you, brother? What are you drinking today? Uh, I made a uh, strawberry gin smash. Um, so I've been trying to kind of follow Haas's uh, lead you and the, the gins gin. here and try some different things. So um, you just take your fresh strawberries, um, muddle them up with some mint, pour in the gin, kind of shake it all together with a little lim- uh, lemon juice, uh, pour it over ice and top it with ginger beer. And uh, it's, it's pretty refreshing. And I, I would definitely see this being a good like summer day uh, drink with the strawberry and the gin. Okay, right on. So that's not an ode to our particular topic, but that's okay. What gin uh, did you use? I used aviation gin in oh. honor of the no-fly zone over the Ukraine right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, see how I tied go. that in? Yeah, you did. Yes. I spoke too yes. soon. <laughs> God damn it! There we go. Of course, I did. It is what it is. All right, man. I appreciate it. Uh, Haas, what about you, brother? What are you bringing to the table? I went, I went simple. I went basic. Um, yeah, I've not done this shit on the show, and today seemed like a perfect day. So I'm, uh, I cracked open the Angel's Envy, the, the, uh, the bottle that, uh, the bottle that Mrs. Haas got me for Christmas. So, um, in honor of what's going on and the respect, and uh, just a solemn salute to to those fighting for their freedom and there their country. You go. Uh, very, yeah, nice, very nice. Very nice. Yeah. I would cheers to that, but I don't want to ruin the surprise. Oh, <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, I'm looking around the room. There's nobody left. I guess I think, I think we're done. I that guess was it's four you, people, right? Oh, it was it was four, right? There's four on the show. Yeah, that was You're four right. people. Yeah. So we're done. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh <laughs> you, Thor, inspired me because you said you were doing, you know, an homage Dedicated. to each of us dedication. Well, back in the day, I don't know if you still do it, Andy. You used to host the worst beer contest i haven't done it in a long time but but yes so here i am in walmart it's a durian fruit beer uh, i saw this what the fuck is that it's just it's a michelada comes with a packet of seasoning and you just put whatever beer into it so i put corona into it even added the lime not because i'm classy as fuck I haven't tried this yet. This may be awful. So, there's so supposed the to be seasoning that comes in it. They're supposed to be comes hugely popular pack. in Mexico. Like uh, there are bars that are just dedicated to making micheladas in Mexico. Yeah. Different it's like types. Sea salt, cane sugar, paprika, chili powder, lime powder, lemon powder, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, so, if nothing else, your asshole's going to get cleaned out. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Okay. We're gonna do it. We're doing it. We're doing it. As long as you doing it. Back in the day, uh, I had a bad beer contest, and somebody brought a Bud Light Clamato, or it was a Bud Light Chilada with Clamato. It was basically like clam juice, tomato juice, and beer. And Yummy. it was so bad. We had to retire the jersey. Like, we could not allow that entry <laughs> to be entered into the contest ever again. It was like one and done. It was so bad. I remember, and I don't know, Dave might have been at my house. My wife was pregnant at the time. And somebody cracked one of them open in the same room my wife was in. And she literally had to, like, vacate the premises. <laughs> she had that, like, pregnancy, like, super factor. Uh, yeah, smelling, yeah, smell. you know, and she's like, I, I, I got to get out of here. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I thought you were going to say you sit her into labor, which would have been even better. But <laughs> look at that. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be an interesting one. We're going to work through it. Uh, there's a lot going on there. But, is that the uh, only one you got in case you need a refill? Well, it's I, 24 I say, actually, ounces of beer in this thing. Okay, well, good luck on <laughs> that. We may need to make sure he keeps <laughs> it even... in, in view of the camera. Because okay. I can see Grinch going. Just pouring it out. A little bit out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm going to move a plant next to me. Get a little bucket. <laughs> Three days <laughs> later, the plant's dead. Plant. <laughs> uh, what I love is it says add 24 ounces and it says there you can add 12 more ounces when you get it down to halfway because that's how effective the packet is, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. are you going to do that? Uh, no, I do have to work tonight. So. Oh, <laughs> hey, oh, yeah. You, you said you found this at Walmart? <laughs> right. At Walmart, yeah. And okay. there's a section where they have like the mix, you know, the mixes. Mm-hmm. Yep. all right well i appreciate it cheers gentlemen uh and again haas as you said to all those people cheers. out there fighting for their freedom <laughs> cheers, cheers. Mm-hmm. and, and i'm right. glad nobody did uh nobody did vodka today no absolutely not I smashed a few bottles that i saw <clears throat> <laughs> zach just walked down the aisle and well, just yeah, push them right. off. i mean they were chopin vodkas i mean it was it was it was from france so yeah that, well that's the interesting thing i was reading an article before this you know yeah before they started they said like there's only like one percent of the vodka that's sold in the u.s it's actually produced in russia in russia yeah everything else may have a russian name but it's produced somewhere else exactly yeah some pr department's like um we need to get on this Change right. from Cyrillic to like English. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so let's go ahead and jump into our topic. This is this potentially is going to be a long one. There's a lot to unpack and a lot to cover. And as I said, we do have the the founding member of the country of Italy here. So clearly knows a lot about Europe as a whole. And so I thought, you know, let's have a guest on. Grinch, you were kind enough to reach out, have Andy on the show. So here we are. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump into it. Just a quick little timeline so that everybody listening if you haven't been paying attention, kind of understand. So I'm just, I'm not going all the way back. I'm just going to start around April 21st, 2019. The president of Ukraine, Zelensky, is elected into office. Then we're going to jump forward to December 2021. Zelensky begins to crack down on pro-Russian, pro-Russian Ukrainian oligarchs. And one of those is a Viktor Medvedchuk, who happens to be a close friend of Putin. And so Putin begins to deploy a number of troops near the Ukrainian border and actually kind of lobbies NATO to not allow Ukraine to be admitted to NATO. Of course, the request is rejected by the Biden administration, but there has been an issue in terms of Ukraine getting into NATO. Then we're going to fast forward to February 21st. Uh, Obviously, there are some separatist regions in Ukraine 
they have been there since around 2014. One of those is Crimea, which sits on the Black River and houses the largest, uh, what I say, Black Sea, sorry, what is Black, Black Sea, Black, yeah. Black sea uh, which houses one of the largest ports, if not the largest port in Sevastopol on the Black Sea. So that is controlled by Russia. There are a number of separatist regions in Donsk and Luhansk, I believe, are the two regions. And so they amass troops along the border and in an unprovoked move, move into those two regions, claiming they are Russian supported regions. And so they're basically defending them. And then three days later on the 24th, obviously a full-scale invasion of Ukraine occurs from a number of different points along the borders. And we find ourselves here now this week, just a week removed. All of Russia has obviously moved in. They have surrounded Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine, Kharkiv, the second largest city in Ukraine. They are shelling attacks, bombing attacks, tanks moving in, soldiers on foot. And obviously at this point, we know Ukraine has kind of risen up in defense of their own country freedom and democracy to fight back. So that's kind of where we stand right now. There are a lot of other things in play, but that's what we're looking at. So I thought, let's go ahead and talk about this today before we get too far removed. So who would like to go ahead and start? We should probably have our guest. Should we? Do we know that he knows anything? Are we making this? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Yeah, I mean, absolutely, Andy. I mean, when you were here for the Rittenhouse uh, episode, you brought a ton of conversation, a ton of detail to that. And obviously having you here, we're hoping a lot occurs um, in the same way. So what sure. would you like to talk about? Well, first, I, I had to get the critical caveat out of the way in that uh, I, I do not. I'm only speaking here on behalf of myself and not my employer, which is the U.S. Army. Uh, I work as a civilian there. Um, <clears throat> so uh, a, as it happens, uh I got my uh, graduate school degree in international relations from Villanova uh, in uh, 95. And uh, <clears throat> I spent a considerable part of that time in my degree studying the, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the formation of these sort of post-Soviet republics. And I, I remember uh, quite distinctly uh, back in that 93, 94, 95 timeframe, um, there were several things that I think are relevant even today, right? Number one, was the fact that this, a, you know, a major Soviet fleet was based out of Sevastopol um, and they had to divide up. It was like a divorce, right? There was a huge Soviet fleet to include uh, a major aircraft carrier, the, the Kiev, um, that was homeported in Sevastopol. Um, and, and there had to be an immediate discussions about how to divide up the fleet and who was going to get what. The second thing was, and even potentially more important than the first, was the fact that there was a large number of nuclear weapons that were stationed on Ukrainian soil. And although those nuclear weapons, the launch codes were maintained in Moscow, much like ours, uh, nuclear arsenal, the fact our, remains- Our launch codes are maintained in Moscow? That's fucking- No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, so, so the, although the Ukrainians didn't have the launch codes to launch them, they had 95% of what they needed. They had- the delivery vehicles, they had the warheads, they had the plutonium pits. I mean, they had everything, you know, except the launch codes, which they, which if they wanted to, they could have reverse engineered. I mean, they could have just stripped out the software on the, on the motherboards and, and, and the hardware and re-engineered them. And that's, that's not that hard to, 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 you know, I mean, anyway. Um, so, so the, the point for this discussion is that the, uh, the Clinton administration, which I was not a big fan of, but to their credit, they made a significant effort to to de-escalate tensions, and there was there was a time where I thought 
that Ukraine and Russia under Yeltsin at the time were going to come to blows over over Crimea. Um, and, and also, it was not clear if the Ukrainians were going to give up their nukes, because I think everybody, including the folks in Ukraine, understood that once they gave up the nukes, that their their ability to safeguard their own independence would be at risk. And so the Clinton administration, with some others in Europe, negotiated this Budapest mem- memorandum in which uh, all of the signatories to that agreement essentially agreed to respect the territorial integrity of Ukraine to include Russia, right? And then in exchange for those territorial integrity guarantees, um, the Ukrainians agreed to give up their inherited nuclear arsenal. And again, it wasn't just like a few nukes, it was hundreds of nukes. Um, And uh, so, I mean, I guess my point is, is that ever since Putin detached Crimea from Ukraine in 2014 and, and intervened in this Donbass region, um, you know, the, the, the fuse was lit for, for, for this day, right? And the fact that the West didn't really mount a significant response is a major reason why Putin felt like he could get away with this power grab. Um, and then the, the other thing I was going to say at the outset is that <clears throat> I, I believe that that um, Putin is really operating, in my view, from a position of weakness. I mean, he, he believes, in my view, that things are trending in the wrong direction for Russia on a whole host of fronts, right? Number one, all of his actions since 2014 have driven Ukraine, instead of intimidating Ukraine, it's driven it further and further into the West. Um, NATO and, and uh, uh, although we have, never agree- we have never granted Ukraine NATO membership, uh, mainly under the belief that we didn't want to provoke Putin needlessly. Um, but notwithstanding the fact that we didn't grant them NATO membership, from a practical standpoint, since 2014, it, it's almost been irrelevant that they not admit a NATO member because multiple American army and, 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 and other Euro, you know, NATO armies have sent their troops to Ukraine for training purposes. You know, that I think we share intelligence with them. You know, we've we've obviously exported a considerable number of weapons to them, uh, and and that close military tie is only increasing over time. Uh, similarly, you know, I think since Zelensky's election, they they have done a lot of things to try to reduce corruption. I mean, cr- Ukraine was notoriously corrupt, and that was something that Putin fostered as a way of maintaining control and and weakening sort of Ukrainian national identity. Uh, so anti-corruption really should be properly understood as sort of like a Ukrainian nationalist agenda item, because, you know, it's hard to, to be loyal or patriotic about a country that is just, you know, looting the people blind, you know, as a kleptocracy. I mean, it's pretty hard to want to fight and die for a kleptocracy. Uh, so anyway, so, so those are my sort of in, in no particular order, my initial thoughts uh, to help frame, you know, what what's going on. I, I think Putin is fundamentally calculated here that, not, that that because of the lack of an effective response to the ob- obliteration of the B- Budapest Memorandum in 2014, and because he has not seen an effective response from the West, and, and he's, as he's looking down the road, he's thinking their relationship with the West is only getting deeper over time, and, and that Moscow's relative economic position is also getting weaker over time. They are, um, you know, their, their economy is really not doing that well. Most of their economic growth 
and income growth has been from natural resource extraction. They've not really developed any you know, native industries of any note. Uh, and, and so, you know, from, from Putin's perspective, if he waited 10 years, the Ukrainian military would be probably twice as effective in 10 years as they were today. And their military today is probably more than twice as effective as it was in 2014. So it's sort of like a situation where you've got a losing hand and, and you're not sure what the other guy's got, but you, you know, if you keep playing, you know, you're going to lose. And so that, that's always the most dangerous situation when you're dealing with a great or regional power, when they're, they feel like they're on a declining slope and they got no other in their mind options. Okay. I'm just going to say right out of the gate, he didn't have much to say, clearly. <laughs> just uh, going to put it out there. I did read that, and uh, I forget where I read it. Uh, I, it was either a Washington Post or a BBC thing. But, but I did read that the Russians blew up a dam that the Ukrainians built after 2014 to essentially deprive Ukra- uh, Crimea of water so that, so that there was a, a river, uh, of, uh, a major source of fresh water, that the Ukrainians, once the Russians launched their 2014 aggressive campaign, the Ukrainians responded by building up this dam to withhold fresh water from downstream and that and that Ukraine had been hit with some kind of a major drought in recent years and that that might have been a flashpoint uh, for the uh, for the Russians in terms of why now as opposed right. to why, you know, two years from now or why not two years ago. Gotcha. All right, gentlemen. Well, he he opened with quite a lot. So where do we go from here? Yeah, I, I, uh, I it was all very well said. Um, He's at a loss. A couple other thoughts to, you know, to pile on is, you know, I I think it does beg the question of the why now, which, you know, it is waning influence. Um, You know, absolutely the the trend of Ukraine. I mean, the election outcome, I'll go ahead and say, I think the United States election was also a factor in who was in office. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm hesitant to outright say that I think it was a more favorable position, but given the fact that the former president has made statements saying it was brilliant what he did, it suggests that there probably wouldn't have been nearly the response. And so it was kind of a factor of maybe other, like multiple factors that kind of contributed to this impatience that just finally took over to, to, to act. Um, you know, because with the two elections, one in Ukraine not being favorable to Russia, and then clearly with Biden coming in, you know, Putin knew that's not somebody that's going to say, <laughs> right? You know, he's not going to say favorable things. Um, and and yeah, I mean, okay, you know, it, it, it. I do still like to the big key question: What was the flashpoint of all this? You know, is it Putin himself? Uh, is he growing tired of? You know, he's been in office, what, 20 something years, you know, he's a dictator for all intents and purposes. Um, And they've made no significant ground. I mean, like you said, you know, Crimea gobbled it up, minimal sanctions and some other things, but by and large, they, they, you know, they got away with it. But, you know, they did this because they didn't want NATO on their doorstep. Suddenly they're like, well, maybe I do because I'll have the full weight of NATO. Right that I can bring to bear and well, that's even what Biden came out and said just sanctions and military aid. How yeah. the irony is, is that the one thing Putin didn't want is what's happening is the world is galvanizing, but for China and Pakistan, um, the world is galvanizing together against the, this Russian aggression. 
Like, and, and I mean, you know, to date, we've had some massive sanctions. Uh, they're moving forward with SWIFT, you know, which is going to, which is going to have a tremendous effect on their ability to create financial transactions. And that's, that's what, that's the banking, the, the international banking. Yeah. What I heard explained was it's like the plumbing of the banking system. It moves all the information. It doesn't move the money. And then within the international banking world, about 70% of transactions go through United States banks in some form and the dollar is the is the primary form of currency in which that occurs. So by shutting off select banks access to SWIFT, they cannot transmit financial transactions. Now I know in, in lieu of that coming, sorry, Mac, real quick, in lieu of that coming, I know Putin came out to a number of the extremely wealthy and the oligarchs in Russia and said, look, this is coming be prepared. And the best thing we can do from a business and political standpoint is band together, accept that it's going to happen and try to figure out how to move forward. Almost as a laughing in the face of financial sanctions that they're going to obviously leverage against Russia. And he's already setting them up saying this is going to happen, but it shouldn't deter what we're doing. So I don't know how that ultimately plays out. So uh, Mac, what are we going to say, brother? Well, I mean, I think my question is, is the sanctions are great, right? And you know, it's good that they're doing something, but, you know, how long is it going to take for that to have any sort of a real impact? And what's going to be the struggle that the Ukrainians and, you know, God forbid, he decides to move on. Well, uh, that know, they're going to they're going to face. Right. I mean, at some point you have to you have to act more than just saying, you know, we're, we're going to impose these sanctions that, you know, may impact you in, you know, six months to a year. You know, Mac, I had to ignore the thought. suffering. But I tell you what's interesting is, is every it seems like every other article I read is people are pulling out of this and people are pulling out of that. And I mean, everything from like uh, World Cup qualifying soccer matches. No one wants to, to, to play with Russia. Um, and, and that's uh, fine. IRC right. But who the fuck is banning, shit about it? I mean, well, I, I can guarantee I just, you the people fighting in the streets of the Ukraine. Are they, they could care less about? I, I know they couldn't care less, but but here's the thing: because of the financial ties, and I think this is where, where Putin has lost his marbles. He doesn't realize how interwebbed everyone is now. Um, BP is pulling out; they have a 19.75 percent stake uh, in the Russian oil firm Rosneft, and they're pulling out. I mean, there's huge consequences here to the point where, I, yes. I agree with you, Matt. I was like, well, you know, sanctions are great and all, but I mean, oligarchs are oligarchs. Like, I mean, they're so freaking wealthy. They don't give a shit. But I think it's getting to a point now where the entire world is like, it's coming from so many different places that I, I don't know how they're, if I was yeah, an oligarch in Russia right now, I'd be telling Putin, what are we doing? You better reassure me that what you've done here is, is going to have some big right benefit thing. for it. Right. Better well, have some big benefit for us. That That's exactly, I, I think the issue is, um, you know, I was talking to somebody else and I said, it's super painful because we're watching the tactical every day and it's hard to watch, but these are strategic level moves that if you say every crisis is an opportunity, like we wouldn't have been able to do this otherwise. Like there is an opportunity here to completely hobble Russia in a way that they may not have anticipated. And it's going to have far reaching effects. You mean finance that- using financing? The finance financing and, you know, being a player on the world stage, <clears throat> their international community. Like if we start sidetracking energy, you know, if they start developing alternate energy uh, sources and there's no recovering from that, you know, and 
And so, you know, the other thing we always talk about is I think all of this is designed to create that infamous pain threshold we talked about, or we talk about a lot of internally to the country. Because, you know, the other thing is we know this man, Putin, has surrounded himself with an echo chamber. Nobody's offering critical thought in that room. I mean, he is a one-man band. He doesn't want to hear got it. Some, some trained monkeys that are like, I, I dare not speak up or else. Uh, a bunch of yes men. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a dangerous environment because everybody, you know, who may have gone, hey, this could, this could, you know, in the Swift example. Um, okay. So they did anticipate it and they created a similar capability within Russia to, to facilitate financial transactions. That's if even these banking communities will interact with them by other means. But it's like 400 a day, I think, is what it can do. It's nothing at the scale of what the facility in Belgium does. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it should be noted, SWIFT falls under the purview of EU. Right. Is in terms of who gives it its guidance. Now, there's a whole body that has to vote and so forth. But, you know, it's, it's in Belgium and the EU. So when the EU moves, you know, the, the SWIFT will follow suit. Mac, I think the point maybe as delicately as you were without actually saying it when you talk about sanctions are great and all that, but I think the implication you were making there was boots on the ground. Like sanctions will only get you so far. At what point does military action, is military action needed, right? I I mean, I know nobody wants boots on the ground. Nobody wants American soldiers physically involved in in another war, you know? And and, and look, I have no military background whatsoever. So anybody here, you know, correct me if, I, if I'm going way off base here, but we don't have to put boots on the ground anymore, right? I mean, we have, you know, probably one of the biggest, you know, air forces in the world, right? You know, we, we have ways of defending them, you know, and, and helping protect them without, you know, necessarily putting people in direct harm's way, I think. Right, but my understanding is we don't want to get involved because we don't have a political arrangement or agreement with Ukraine. Well, it's why, I think it's why we're, it's why we're sending resources into Poland and on the western the eastern front uh, to to protect the, the the European Union, which we do have an political right. arrangement the with NATO right? allies, <laughs> the NATO countries. Right. But at some point, you have to say, okay, we don't have a political agreement with you, but you know, we have a moral the, obligation. The, the, yeah, a, there, there's a, a moral obligation, obligation. That needs to be, needs to be there. Right. So, um, to so, where we so China, some China. It's Russia, their killer power. That's the problem. We want to tiptoe with that. Well, I mean, I, at some point, I think you might have to, right? When it's possible, this other, this other strategy may work. But well, that's, the, that's the key distinction is because um, if you look at like a Kosovo um, and other, other areas where we chose to act, frankly, if the country couldn't really respond significantly, that made the decision easier. Now we know on the UN with the Security Council, I mean, Russia can veto anything, you know, like it already did. It vetoed the <laughs> condemnation of the war. You know, they're like, yeah. no, no, you know. Happen. So, so you, you, you know, it, until something else changes with the UN, that's not really the body that you're probably going to get meaningful action. It's going to be the EU and NATO. And uh, as you said, Haas, they're not a NATO member. Um. And I'm going to say a statement that, you know, any Ukrainian would want to punch me in the face over and I get it. <laughs> Ukraine is suffering the consequences of two power players or multiple power players jockeying at the strategic level. 
And so if you're the United States, it, it's not that you, you know, you want this over with, of course, but you're bleeding out part of Russia with only providing equipment and resources. Yeah, we, we can so long. We, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead, Andy. I would not favor uh, having the United States do force on force with the Russians. I think that's way too risky. And I don't think we need to do it in order to get a, good, a decent outcome out of this thing. For, for starters, it's not clear we, that we could actually defend the Baltics. If the Russians decided to go for broke, even with the forces they've committed uh, in Ukraine, the, the, the Baltics do not have, I mean, they're just small countries. Right. So if if the Baltics did get invaded, they, they would probably have their capitals conquered in like a matter of like a week or two. Right. And then we would have to settle in for a very long, brutal conflict to try to liberate the Baltics. So I I don't think there's a there's a there's an advantage to the U.S. in, in trying to expand this conflict. I, I do think hmm. that that there's an advantage sort of to, to Grinch's point of bleeding the Russians white in Ukraine by opening up the spigots for weaponry and, and continuing to share intelligence and advice with them and, and then just keep turning the screws over and over again on the economics. Uh, you know, the, the last point I would make on the oligarchs is what, one thing that folks should understand about these types of authoritarian regimes, these oligarchs are not like normal like they're, they're not like bill gates over there they, they didn't invent anything they didn't like create anything these are people who gained their billions Family money with no by by theft i mean they they, oh, they managed okay. to, to scam their way after the fall of the soviet union uh through bogus privatization you know rigged schemes to to suddenly you know have all the shares of these state-owned enterprises you know i mean you know i mean so my point is these people are have blood on their hands. Like they're they're not going to break from Putin, right? They know that that if the regime falls over there, they're going to be swinging from a lamppost right alongside Putin. I mean, this is the thing that dictators are very good at doing: is making sure they promote people that that also have blood on their hands, so that there's no way you can drive a wedge in between the regime power players. That they all are equal, you know, not actually equally guilty, but all have enough guilt that they can't just depart, you know? Right. And, and you saw that with Saddam Hussein, where his brothers-in-law fled to Jordan in the mid nineties and the, the opposition groups wanted nothing to do with them. Right. These guys were, this was like Saddam Hussein's daughters, husbands, and they fled to the Jordan and the Iraqi opposition wanted nothing to do with these guys because they were brutal. You know, they, they were involved in everything. And then when they came back, and then of course Saddam Hussein said, "Oh, don't worry, all will be forgiven if you come back." And they got back, and they were like executed, like on the tarmac, you know. So <laughs> yeah. I mean, every every oligarch, you know, I'm sure is quite aware of what happened to those guys. So yes. they're they're not going to break ranks, you know. So, so I guess the one question I have for you, Andy, then is um, because I would be willing to say you you're much smarter about any of this than I am, so. What what do you think it would take for you know the U.S. or NATO or anybody to put put boots on the ground? I mean, and, and do you think you know? I mean, is that Putin continuing, you know, through through Europe past the Ukraine, or do, I, I think, do you think he's even thinking that far ahead? Yeah. Well, number one, if if Putin puts any kinetic, you know, if he if he puts steel 
into any of NATO members, I mean, it's on, you know, okay. but, but the other circumstances where I think this could escalate would be in cyberspace. In other words, if Putin decides to start responding uh, in cyberspace uh, and those cyber operations damage, you know, Western critical infrastructure, and that could have happened either by deliberate intent, like, you know, trying to shut down like our utilities and trigger a power outage or something, or as happened with our, our cyber operations, supposedly in Iran uh, about 20, uh, 15 years ago or so with the Stuxnet, mm-hmm. you know, where you plant uh, a virus or a worm or something like that. And it, and it cascades and escapes, you know, and then creates like a large worldwide or regional Internet outage of some kind. Um, so, so if they, if they if they launch some kind of a cyber thing, and introduce like a virus or whatever, and that expanded out of Ukraine and damaged, let's say the German, you know, utility or hospital system or something like that, right? I mean, you know, the calls for military right. action would start to really increase, you know. Uh, and then I would say, you know, another possibility would be if if Putin dispatches his agents to like assassinate, you know. Uh, Ukrainian exiles on foreign soil. I mean, that could be another area where people would lose their so, minds. Andy, yeah, okay. so, so today when Putin like escalated his, his nuclear weapon divisions or whatever, that, that, that's just posturing. Yeah. There's, there's different levels of strategic readiness that we have. And, and he just simply increased the readiness. I, I, I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't overreact to it. I, I think that was mostly for domestic consumption to be quite, and, and maybe to intimidate like weak need European governments or something, but I, I'm not worried about it. I mean, we, we have, you know, boomer subs on the high seas at, <laughs> at all times that have enough nukes on it to eliminate Russian civilization many times over, you know, well, and, if they and keep it boomers, up, they'll eliminate themselves. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, another way this could escalate out of control in my view would be, if the Kievan government fell, meaning meaning like, you know, they took Kiev and drove the government into exile. And let's say either Zelensky or Zelensky's successor set up shop in Poland. Right. And then and then NATO continued to supply weapons. And, and then the you know Ukrainian government in exile was operating, you know, on NATO soil. That, that would also put a significant risk of escalation into play, because now you have a, a sanctuary that the Russians would have an incentive to attempt to attack, right? Uh, I mean, you know, this is why we ended up losing in Afghanistan, right? Because, you know, the, the Taliban were always able to retreat into Afghanistan, into Pakistan, and there was never political will in the United States to ever make the Pakistanis pay a price for that, you know? Right. So so anyway, there's, there, so there's a couple of ways this could escalate to the point where you could see realistically, you know, the U.S. and NATO coming into military conflict with the Russians. But I, I don't think it would make any sense for us to, to initiate that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And, and again, uh, one of the things I was looking at in terms of, you know, especially with Mac talking about that, like boots on the ground, like I think when you talk about war, people just naturally, they go, oh, well, well you know, Iraq, we're going into Iraq, Afghanistan, we're going into Afghanistan. Let's go back to the 60s. We're going into Vietnam. So when you talk about war, I think that's where people naturally go, are we going to put... Americans and others in harm's way by putting boots on the ground. I think the interesting fact is from a military perspective, obviously both Russia and the U S rank very high, at least in the top five in terms of active military in the world, and then what they can call upon uh, into active service. And I know right now 
I think Russia has about 850,000 active military, but I think they can call upon almost four and a half million, where the USA has about 1.4 million active duty, but can only call upon about 3 million and change. And then Haas, as you said, you also have China as a major player that's backing Russia right now, which is the number one, both active duty and what they can call upon. I think outside of North Korea, I think North Korea can call upon the most, but uh, yeah, I think that's another reason you avoid getting into a, a war of attrition because a, we don't even, and Grinch, I think you can speak to this from a logistic standpoint as a, as an engineer in the military, like moving enough people that far would be a massive undertaking, right? I mean, that would be to be able to get enough people and enough equipment and supplies and infrastructure on the ground there. Does that even make sense? Yeah. I mean, and jumping back to Andy's point, um, you know, if, if a war spreads that quickly, which you hope it doesn't, um, you, you're, you're dealing with, you know, multiple points of contact. And it's, it's worth saying, you know, like even our military is not designed to cover the, the world at all times. Like it, it's, generally constructed to meet the needs of the, the combatant commands, but it's also constrained by its own spending limits and, you know, its own modernization efforts and so forth. So, you know, I'm a little hesitant when I see any top line numbers, just because that's not usually what you could expect to it's, I mean, short of a world war, right. Um, because you're still maintaining contact around the world, whether it is the Pacific and a North Korea or, you know, China suddenly goes, well, now's the time to get Taiwan. You know, it, it, yes, it's tremendous logistics. Um, there are tremendous logistics involved with moving, especially like an armor brigade. You know, you, you, you tend to move those onesie twosies by plane, you know, or maybe a few more on like a C5, you know, a rapid deployment force, but moving in bulk is usually by ship, you know, and that obviously takes a little time. So I, <laughs> You know, also you're you're committed when you start moving that large of a force. Just in terms of like it's, it it can be seen as opposed to the cyber cat and mouse. The you know using separatist as cover to go, hey, we just came to their aid. You know, like the cat's out of the bag in that regard for Ukraine. You know, they, they pulled it off with Crimea by just creating, you know, dissent locally and destabilizing it, which was which is what I think Putin had hoped to achieve in Ukraine by kind of striking all across the country and creating, you know, widespread awareness that it was happening. Um, I, I think he underestimated the resolve of the Ukrainian people, frankly. Sorry, I'm sitting here talking and I'm muted. I apologize. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's. That's why I thought my question, you'd, you'd be a good one to answer that question from a logistics standpoint. And, and like I said, I know people tend to go, oh, war, we're going to put soldiers there. But I think, you know, in terms of what we're saying, leveling the sanctions against him from a financial standpoint may end up having Russia circling the drain because it's going to bleed them. Uh, Andy, as you said, I mean, it's going to bleed them and, can, and hopefully continue to do so where maybe the oligarchs stand up and go, OK, Putin, this clearly was an exercise. It's no longer working. You know, and either they replace him or or they figure something else out. I don't know. Four key points, though, I'd like to talk about, Andy. You already touched on two of them, one via Haas and then one on your own. And so I'd like to talk about just a couple. In the last week, some major points 
that were brought up. Uh, Jen Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, did mention recently, and it's become widespread news, that talks between both Russia and Ukraine on the Belarus border are now in the works. That a delegation from Ukraine is going to go to Belarus and they're going to meet a Russian delegation and talk about hopefully a political resolution to this issue. And I know, Andy, you said what would potentially cause us to go to a full-scale war. Would assassinating that delegation, would that be something that would do it? Assassinating which delegation? If the Russians invite the Ukrainians to the border to talk and then you know, assassinate Zelensky there or whatever the case, like that would be something that I think would escalate to countries then solidifying putting boots on the ground. I, I think if, if they blatantly assassinated Zelensky under the cover of a diplomatic truce, uh, that would definitely put all the Western leaders in a tough spot right. uh, to, to want to do more. Uh, I, I would argue that, that, the, that the odds are high that that Biden would start with sort of covert and cyber and then work his way up from there. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, you know, I could see, you know, somebody telling uh, uh, Putin, I'm sorry, somebody advising the, the president Biden, you know, maybe we should go on offense and cyber, you know, uh, in response, you know, like let's, let's, let's fool with their, but the problem with cyber is, is that we have a lot more to lose than they do. Right. You know, I mean, so, I mean, you know, I mean, they yeah, they have power grids and things like that. But the reality is we our GDP is many orders of magnitude larger than theirs. So, you know, they, they could inflict in calc. I mean, you know, my, my one complaint with with Biden over the last week or so is that when asked, you know, he really kind of whiffed, on, in my view, on, uh, uh, you know, he knows that the Democrats are in tough spot with the midterms, and he knows that inflation is, a, is an Achilles heel for them. But he's not really laying the groundwork for people in terms of preparing for shared sacrifice. So in other words, if we really want mm-hmm. these sanctions to work and we want to have some additional options in case of something like you described, then you have to be preparing the American people. And, the, and then similarly, the, the Europeans have to, and the Japanese, et cetera, have to be preparing their own people. That we, we may need instead of putting boots on the ground, we may need to accept, you know, higher prices of X percent, you know, in order to inflict the sufficient pain in lieu of military action, you know. And, and if you're not building that support, you know, and 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 signaling to your to your political critics that hey, I'm willing to deal here and compromise on some things that you guys care about in order to make sure we maintain some semblance of national unity, you know, then you know, it's, it's easy to ask for national unity, but if you're not willing to trade anything to get it, like what you're really asking them to do is just sort of fall on their knees for you. Right. And, right. and pass up, you know, obvious opportunities to, to, to you know, to, to slam you. Um, so anyway, so I, I do think that would put a huge amount of pressure on, on Western leaders if something like that were to happen. And it's all speculation, obviously. I mean, we're just kind of devil's advocate the situation. That's the only reason I was asking, right? There's no indication that that'll occur. Hopefully a peaceful resolution can come from that. It was just one of those things where like, that's kind of in a, in a sick and twisted way. That's one of the best things for Ukraine is the rest of the world would have to, at that point, shit or get off the pot. Like, you yeah, can't I, let I, I mean, they did like offer, they did offer, uh, uh, Russians did offer some kind of a delegation in Belarus. And because Belarus has now allowed the Russians to, to launch 
from Belarus, you know, uh, Talinsky was like, you know, yeah, no way am I meaning they're not neutral, you know. <laughs> right. Clearly. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, one. Go ahead, uh, 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 Grinch. I was just going to say, I mean, in the likelihood of him being in person for any negotiation, it's pretty slim. Right. It's not going to happen. Um, I, but Zoom I, think call it. I, I think a very important aspect of this, though, is I don't think they expected him to stay. The, the, the typical move under, you know, when you're under duress as a nation is if the leadership thinks they're at risk, they displace. And since that didn't happen, I think that was something else that Putin didn't expect um, because that would have created kind of a vacuum of will. And instead what you're getting is, is the exact opposite. You know, you've got a man who, you know, freaking incredibly brave, you know, recording on the streets of, of Kiev, you know, showing his resolve. And I, I mean, took up arms I'm, himself, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I'm damn impressed. Yeah. I am yeah. damn impressed. And no. I think, that's the one X factor in this right now is I think it's it's Zelensky. One of the speculative situations is that they are they're asking for him and a delegation to go. And it is to pull that power base out of Kiev to allow Russia access to Kiev, you know, to go in yeah. because you're yeah, removing yeah, yeah. that power base. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but that was a speculation by pundits. So it's like, OK, is that something that the gamesmanship of the situation that Putin's like, okay, well, let's do this delegation. And then we remove the power base from the capital. So yeah. I don't know. No, I, yeah, no, I, it's chess for sure. And I yeah. think again, you have people whose culture DNA upbringing is so close. I mean, they're, they're practically countrymen on a number of levels, but he, you know, you know, the whole thing Putin was trying to orchestrate, of course, is, is pushing, his sphere of influence out reclaiming the old regime. You know, I think he was, his quote was the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the fall of the Soviet union. So that was how we approached it is the, we're, you know, we're just coming to their aid. Like we're the victim we're under, you know, we're concerned. And, and, and that every time these images of these brave Ukrainians comes on the TV, like it completely negates that story. And I think even the Russian population is like, I'll get arrested if I say certain things, but what are we doing? Right. Um, so I mentioned four points that I wanted to talk about. That was the first, obviously, the delegation to the border. Uh, Andy, you touched on the other. One of the things they did caution against two, uh, two major U.S. intelligence uh, advocates had said cyber attacks may become a major concern on America from the financial institutions to the critical infrastructure, as you mentioned. So obviously that's something that we have to be aware of. Haas, you mentioned the Russian deterrence forces were put on high alert, which includes Russia's nuclear arsenal. And of course, Putin did come out last week and say, if anything happens, if, if any other country obviously steps up or retaliates or does anything, Russia will retaliate on a scale the world has never seen. Obviously, that causes people to pause, raises eyebrows, because what does that ultimately mean? I mean, where can you really go when you're talking about something like that? And I think, is that posturing? Is that, again, him kind of gaming it out, him kind of hoping that the world will blink versus doing something by saying something like that? And then the last point is, obviously, we know Russia now controls Chernobyl uh, and the issues surrounding that 
and, and we know what happened there in terms of the largest uh, nuclear disaster that occurred in history. And now they have moved into that portion just north of Kiev, and they now control Chernobyl. So obviously, those are some major issues that have occurred in the last week. Uh, and so it's where are we at? Where are we going? I honestly have no idea. And I know people go, well, what's Putin thinking? Well, nobody really knows. And he is kind of, is it maniacal? Is he unhinged? Is it, is it just posturing? So I, I will say real quick too. I mean, yes, he's always been a very difficult person to anticipate because, and he likes it that way. He likes us all wondering how far is he willing to go and you, you just hope the rational mind takes over, but that's not really how he works. I mean, he's here to achieve certain things. And, and honestly, I just, this is the one area where I really don't know. And it's not, I'm only, I don't say that because I'm afraid of them. I just say, because it could be catastrophic. Like I wouldn't be surprised if let's just say they get pushed back part of taking Chernobyl, the point of that was because they're going to damage the shielding around the reactor to create radiation leaks. That's the kind of shit I would expect them to do um, should they get pushed back. And that's a scary-ass proposition. Obviously, you can say, well, you live in America and that doesn't... Yeah, but for the region, that's a scary-ass proposition if that's really what they choose to do. Yeah, I, I, well, I, I had two thoughts on the Chernobyl thing. One thought was uh, that, you know, there, there's, I forget what the, uh, cognitive, uh, bias is called, but there, there's a tendency for people to assume that their opponent is essentially a mirror image of themselves and they attribute mm -hmm. their own attributes to their opponent. Right. Yes. And so sort of what the Grinch laid out that that's how, if Putin were playing the position of Ukraine, right. In Putin's mind, I would argue that he, if he was playing Ukraine, he would blow the thing up as a way of, of like trying to block the Russians. Right. And so I think Putin wanted to take the Ukrainian Chernobyl site because he wanted to secure it so that the Ukrainians couldn't do that, not understanding that there's no way a democratic regime would ever intentionally blow up, you know, their own nuclear repository like that, you know, uh, the other reason I would say that he wanted to secure the Chernobyl thing is because, you know, and this is all, there's a lot of symbolism behind a lot of what Putin does, right? So most people agree that the demise of the Soviet Union, you know, the first real nail in their coffin was the Chernobyl disaster. So I think in his mind, he's sort of like reversing that by securing it and putting it under the control of the Russians. Um, and the last thing I hadn't thought of it and actually until just now when Grinch was talking, but there's to an extent, and I, I can't, this is speculation on my part, but it's possible that the Ukrainians didn't have a large uh, defensive force opposite of, of Ukraine. I'm sorry, opposite of Chernobyl, because they assumed the Ukrainians may have assumed that no one would be stupid enough to come through there and risk destroying or damaging the, the shield. Right. And so it may have been like an Ardennes like opportunity for Putin to sneak, you know, an armored formation or a mechanized infantry formation through there with a weak counter opposing force on the other end. Right. So I, I hadn't thought of that until just now, but again, and I don't, don't know from the live map that, that uh, Grinch shared, whether that's the case or not, 
but anyway, those are some just sort of some thoughts on Chernobyl. Over. And they're always appreciated. So thank you. Uh, Haas, I want to bring you into this debate real quick because you live abroad. Um, you live about 15 hours from the capital city of Kiev mm. in Vienna. And I'm just curious, you know, obviously living there with this happening not that far away from you, what kind of situation has this created for you there in Austria, uh, just a few countries away from where this is all taking place? I mean, everything seems to be pretty much business as normal. I so don't it's like think... nothing's happening. Yeah, p- part of it is is that people were so tired of the last two years of Corona and lockdowns and being corralled. Um, now that things are being let, everything's being rolled back and kind of returned to quote unquote normal. People are just going about their lives. Like I don't, I. It's not that people aren't paying attention. It's not that people don't care. It's not that people aren't offering resources and help because. We're seeing that all across the board. Um, the company Mrs. Haas works for is a, an international company uh, with people from Russia, people from Ukraine. Uh, they have operations in Ukraine and Russia. So um, it, it's it's something that obviously is talked about. She works with people from, like I said, from Russia and Ukraine. So, I mean, it's, it's a conversation. Um, our daughter goes to school with a girl from Ukraine. So it's, it's, it's on the forefront of people's minds, but it's also people are living their lives. Um, it's interesting for us because it's, it's a new concept to us to be this close to something, you know, potentially catastrophically bad. So we're kind of trying to figure out what we're supposed to do. For example, um, Mrs. Haas and I are supposed to go to, to, to Hungary next week. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. you know, that's actually moving us closer to the situation. Um, and so we're, 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 we're very carefully watching it and, and, and trying to assess uh, in real time as best we can what, what's going on. You know, it's, it's, it's worth noting, too, Austria is not a NATO member. I did not know uh, that. <laughs> yes, um, which may be a bit of a factor of how they perceive themselves in the larger context. Um, you know, something I did want to just jump back to real quick, because um, I, I when Andy, when you mentioned um, kind of preparing the U.S. population uh, for potential sacrifices, it relates, you know, financially. I, I think it's that's a very important aspect of this of uh, worth discussing of, of how or why it's being addressed the way it is, because we're approaching midterms um, and candidly, the GOP has said has made statements that absolutely boggle my mind given you know the fact that like reagan is perceived as you know large you know as one of the key players in you know eroding the strength of the soviet union um and you have fox news saying shit uh and we know uh if you're in on fox news you sit and stare at that fucking thing all day i don't know how without blowing your brains out but People like Tucker Carlson saying, what's so bad about Putin? And I don't think that's lost on, you know, the president as it relates to domestic politics of what what kind of will do we have? So he's 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 probably walking a tightrope of really not wanting to say there'll be sacrifice yet, knowing full well that like at some point it's going to have to be addressed. But it may come in the form of like when it happens, it happens. There's a, you know. 
if I forewarn them, I pay a price. If I don't, I pay the price, but I'm more willing to pay the price if I don't, because then it'll look like Russia just kept escalating things to, you know, to a pain threshold that is being felt by Americans. Yeah. It feels like the poor guy's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a reason you age when you're in that, in that position. <laughs> he isn't exactly young. I can't imagine how much sleep he's getting right now. I, uh, I saw an interview with Mitt Romney and again, I'm, you know, Democrat. Um, that's how I lean, but I did see an interview with Mitt Romney and I, I would have to applaud some of the things that he said. And, and one of those was, he was asked about, you know, Trump making commentary about Putin, you know, in his agreement with Putin's approach. And, and Romney was like, and I don't know if it's pandering to the cameras, who knows, but the fact that he said it uh, was at this point in history in America, if you are not for freedom all around the world, basically keep your mouth shut. Like th there's no place for that. Um, and obviously he wouldn't say, yes, Trump was treasonous or whatever, but it was, uh, you know, it is one of those things when you mentioned Tucker Carlson, like how can you support Putin or even ask the question, well, what is, what's, what's he really doing wrong? What is it? You know, it's like, seriously, like, is that even a discussion you have as a rational adult? Now, maybe he's not rational and thus the conversation ensues, but it, you know, I don't watch Fox News. Haas, I know you have said previously you do because keep your enemies close, right? You need to know what they're doing, what they're saying. It's just one of those things where it's like, how is that even a viable conversation to have? Can I make just a quick point on the Fox thing? Does so, it agree with my point or not? Because if it I think does, it does. I, I, oh, okay. I actually okay, think it yes. does. Uh, so, so again, I, as a never Trump type Republican, uh, I, I would say that one of the reasons why Trump and Trumpism has taken such a hold of the GOP was this perception. And some of it was based in reality, but a lot of it is not uh, that that the sort of traditional establishment wing of the GOP was essentially a bunch of wimps who, quote, wouldn't, quote, fight. Right. That they would allow the left to to you know, launch all kinds of unfair attacks. You know, uh, I mean, for example, uh, you know, when Obama's quip during the 2012 uh, presidential debate on, you know, the, the 1980s called and wants their foreign policy back. Right. Well, the fact is Romney has been proven right on that exchange. Right. Uh, you know, another instance was when uh, Biden, when he was the vice president, was told that, you know, Romney's uh, support for, I don't know, less regulation in the financial sector he made some kind of smart mouth, smart alecky response saying like, you know, he wants to put black people back in chains, right? Things like that. Th these are things that every right winger who watches Fox News can recite off the top of their head. And they've got about 20 instances of where they think the left was in the mainstream media was utterly unfair. And I would actually probably agree with if they had 20 instances, I'd probably agree with them on 15 out of the 20. I mean, I'm just making it up. Right. But but I, I mean, I, I mean, I have kept sort of score internally myself. Right. So my, my advice to, to, to Democrats would be that if you want national unity, you have to demonstrate some you have to empower people like Romney, right? Romney is derided by the far right and the Trumpists for being a wimp. Think about how that would change if somebody like Joe Biden and, and former President Obama officially apologized to, to Mitt Romney and, and said, you know what? I, I took a pot shot at you in 2012 about the Russia thing. 
you know, Mitt, you were totally right. I was totally wrong. You know, like, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, right? Just that little gesture alone would go a long way, right? That, I mean, you know, when was the last time any politician ever admitted they were wrong on something? Mm-hmm. Not I'm a lot. Pretty sure, I'm pretty sure hell would freeze over before that, happened, that happened, right? So. right? so, I mean, I, I mean, you know, so it's like, if you want shared sacrifice, you know, you have to lead by example. That's why I think Zelensky is such a powerful symbol. Here's a guy who was given a chance to bail and decided, you know what? No, I'm going to risk my, not down. only myself, but my family. I mean, that's another thing. Like, you know, all of us, I think all of us are married, right? Yes. You know, I, 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 I you know, I would not want to have that conversation with my wife about whether to bail when my wife knew that there was a chance to get out. And I said, no, for the good of the country, you know, we have to have targets on our back. That would be a tough conversation to have, you know, and here's a guy that's been willing. Now, granted, his his family's in hiding or whatever, but they haven't left, you know, as far as we know. And uh, so my point is, is that if if you want shared sacrifice, if you really want to win against Russia here in the non-military sphere, you know, people have to be willing to compromise and and man up. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, so anyway, I, so so there, there's a reason why Fox is so toxic. You know, it's it's the accumulated grievances of 20, 30 years in their minds of left wing uh, uh, excess. Now, I'm not saying the right has never you know, had excess. <laughs> I'm just saying that in their minds, that's what fuels this sort of like smart alecky you know, Fox, like, you know, Tucker Carlson, all of that bile just builds up and somehow you have to lance it. So that would be an example. Like Mitt was right. You know, if, if we could get democratic politicians to simply say that, you know, and, and, and that I think would lance some of the bile and the pus that is accumulated in our body politic. But again, as you mentioned, getting a politician to first admit they're wrong and then apologize for that, it doesn't happen, and it kind of goes against everything I think they believe. It goes against their DNA, <laughs> right, man? It's just not going to happen. But that's uh, that's the sister soldier moment, or you know, I mean, you know, there's, I mean, there's a reason why Bill Clinton was such a gifted politician. You know, is that he he was very nimble in that regard, and he knew where to go to sort of to stay in this in the vital center. You know, and 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 a lot of other politicians have not not managed to find the courage. And of course, Bill Clinton's was not moves were not based out of courage or based out of self-preservation. <laughs> right. But still, he was very gifted in that regard. And, you know, if Joe Biden wants to survive these midterms or not have an obliteration, you know, he needs to be thinking about like his only path to political relevance has to be to look for Churchill like moments, you know, yeah. like trying to, to pretend that all is well, you know. And that everything's going great. GDP is soaring. Like no one's going to believe that, that no one who's already doesn't believe it is going to be persuaded to believe it. That's my point. That's, I mean, that's a tall order to add. Look, I don't care if it's, if whatever your reason is in a position like that, if it's courage, self-preservation, as long as you're making the right decisions, that's all that matters. Use whatever excuse and justification you have to, you know, that's all that matters. Uh, I sent out a, a tweet that that I saw that I came across, and it's uh, from uh, Martha Raddatz, who is a global correspondent. And it said, uh, three hours before the invasion began, I got this sobering message here in Ukraine from a senior Pentagon official. It says, you are likely in the last few hours of peace on the European continent for a long time to come. Be careful. 
how long do we think this is going to drag out? I know we mentioned that there are going to be political talks in Belarus between a Ukraine delegation and a Russian delegation, but ultimately, what are we looking at in terms of timeframes? Speculative, obviously. I mean, we went into Iraq maybe in the early 2000s. We thought that might be quick. That dragged out. And then it was Afghanistan. Like, what are we looking at on the European continent now moving forward in terms of time? This is not something that's going to be done overnight. I was very hesitant uh, and, and anxious uh, about this situation, but there are some things that have happened um, that I didn't expect. And I, I obviously think Putin and the Russians didn't expect um, that have kind of changed the landscape of this situation. So I'm hoping that this thing is not long in the tooth personally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my, just like, um... <laughs> well, no, I just, it, it, every it's, it's going to be incredibly hard to predict, you know, right. uh, for one, just because every day is going to bring a new, like, well, that's different, you know, or that changes things. Yeah. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, um, it, it depends on if they successfully take Ukraine. Um, if this becomes protracted and, and like we said, you know, uh, the equipment starts arriving, it starts bolstering uh, the Ukrainian military and all those brave volunteers Um the domestic situation uh, in Moscow starts to tilt to such point that, you know, Putin does not like how he's being viewed. Um, then I think he spins it, finds a way to extract, um, and then, you know, maybe bides his time or they implement a similar strategy that they had before, which is, continuing to empower basically this, you know, the separatists in various forms and fashion to, to later on create the destabilizing environment that is conducive to them coming in as the rescuers, you know? Uh, so I don't think he's done. It's just a matter of how far is he going to push and how hard on this first go? Cause it, the other thing is obviously, you know, we got to get to the point where, I think in our minds, when we say it will end, we envision the Russian forces, re, you know, returning to Russian soil. Right. Retreating from Ukraine. Yeah. And in our minds, that's one thing. I think in theirs, it's another. Because now, I mean, OK, you already you successfully got two more provinces of Ukraine. And, it, you know, and maybe in Putin's mind, it's like, well, that's two more. We'll just we'll give it a little it bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. We're playing the long game here. So I, I don't know. I, I honestly have no clue where this ends. Andy, what about you? Um, I, I think that as long as uh, the Ukrainians can continue fighting uh, and don't accept whatever the Russian there's, if they don't cut a deal and they continue to fight, I think this could very well end in, in very badly for Putin. I mean, even if he, let's say, conquers Mariupol, which would be a pretty significant victory for him militarily, right? The Ukrainians don't have to accept the outcome there. Uh, the fact that they tried to take Kiev and failed would be absolutely regarded by everybody as a humiliation for Russia, you know? So, I mean, they, they may end up deciding to just take what they can get and sit, sit there and not move, right? And, and just keep slicing off chunks of Ukraine. But the reality is the Germans just said yesterday, 
I mean, yesterday, the 24 hours, I mean, I, I don't know if it was Haas or, or Max point that this is working. This is backfiring on Russia in a good way, you know, for us. I mean, you know, Finland and Sweden are interested in NATO. I mean, who knows what the Austrians may do, right? The Germans announced that they're going to do a one-time $100 billion increase to their defense budget. And then they've also pr- promised, their prime minister promised that they're going to they're going to exceed their 2% NATO defense budget of 2% of GDP goal. Something that Trump tried to bully Merkel into doing for four mm-hmm. years, right? <laughs> and then eight years of Obama and eight years of George W. Bush, right? So that's 20 years of two, three different American presidents trying to get the Germans to, to increase their defense budget, right? And in less than a week, Putin's invasion has gotten the Germans to spend more on their defense than 20 years of American urgings, right? That's a pretty big deal. You know, when Biden announced that he was doing these sanctions, Swift was off the table. You know, now it's on the table. I mean, it's not a complete ban of Swift transactions, but we're, it just in 48 hours, you know, there, there's been tremendous movement against Putin, you know, so. I mean, even if they take Kiev, you know, I, I'm not convinced the Ukrainians will throw in the towel, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now where this ends up, I, I don't know. I mean, it's possible, you know, I mean, you know, it's possible. I, I, if I had a guess, I would argue that this is likely to be a weeping sore for a long time, meaning I think that Ukraine will continue to fight for a long time and that the Russians will have to maintain themselves in positions where they're going to be subjected to casualties for a long time and things will be very messy by all accounts the poll you know there's some racial overtones here but the polls are happy to welcome ukrainian refugees right whereas they were like losing their minds when they were syrian Mm -hmm. refugees you know Mm -hmm. not the kinds of refugee flows that are going to be destabilizing like they were even the Bosnians were toward Muslims, you know, destabilized a lot and, and fostered right wing populist responses. Right. I, I don't think that's going to happen. You know, I think I think caring for these, if anything, the opposite will be the case. Right. As hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians go into these countries, you know, mainly Poland, but others, too. People are going to interact with these Ukrainians at work, at, at school. They're going to learn the stories of sacrifice, you know. And, and that, that's just going to harden their hearts to the Russians, these sons of bitches, you know, look what they did to so-and-so's to Olga's child, you know, look what they did, you know, so-and-so's father was killed, burned alive and some apartment building collapsed, you know, I mean, this is not going to go well for Putin as long as we maintain our resolve and don't cut a deal with the guy and just hang in there as long as we prepare the ground for shared sacrifice. I mean, like, like Grinch said from the much earlier, you know, we, there's an opportunity here to really weaken Putin in a way that a week ago we never had. Well, then we need to just kind of lace up our bootstraps and hold the line and hope that that happens. Um, one thing I did want to mention, I don't know why this got thrown out. I don't know where it came from. I've been confused since I heard it. And maybe somebody here in this group can shed light. It was made mention that one of the reasons they were entering Ukraine was the denazification of Ukraine. What the <laughs> fuck does that mean? They wanted to denazify oh, anyone. I'll do a quick on this one. So okay, good. So the the um, 
there was a there for, for two things. Number one, Ukraine welcomed the Nazis when they arrived in World War Two initially. Okay. And, and, and that was a function of the fact that the Ukrainians during the collective agriculture, uh, collectivization of Ukrainian agriculture were starved. I mean, you know, this is the reason that the Ukrainians are fighting so hard is, that, you know, they have grandparents that taught them about how millions of people were starved to death by Stalin, you know. So the, the Nazis were welcomed by the by the Ukrainians initially during World War Two, thinking that they were liberators. Now, the Nazis made it. Right. Yeah. The Nazis mistake, made a massive mistake in treating Ukrainians horribly, you know, uh, which turned them against them. But even after uh, uh, the Nazis, even after the Ukrainians you know, resorted to partisan tactics against the Nazis, there were sort of right wing uh, Ukrainian groups that that resisted the Soviets. In other words, even after the Soviet Union reconquered and pushed the Nazis out, there were. Ukrainian nationalist partisans that waged conflict against the Soviet Union into the 1950s. And Khrushchev, when before he became the, you know, the, the general secretary of the Communist Party, he was the general secretary of like the Ukrainian Communist Party. And he led the counterinsurgency effort against these partisan Ukrainians that were anti-Soviet. And so there's a rich tradition in the Soviet Union era of categorizing all of these anti-Soviet pro-Nazis as sort of fascists, right? That that's how they generally tried to dismiss, you know, all opposition to the Soviet Union and to communism as, well, of course, they were giving flowers to the Nazis when they marched in. But the reality was that, that the 99.9% of the Ukraine, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but the overwhelming majority of Ukrainian responses were not born from fascism. They were born from anti-Soviet, anti-communist, anti-Russian basis. And the Soviet propaganda line for a long, long time was to characterize these people as sort of like reactionary, you know, counter-revolutionaries, et cetera. And uh, Khrushchev, part of the argument why Khrushchev reoriented the Crimea to from Russia to uh, to Ukraine, actually, was from the scholarship I've read, was that when 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 uh, Khrushchev fleeted up to be the general secretary of the Communist Party, the guy that took over the Communist Party in Ukraine uh, was not totally pro Khrushchev, and Khrushchev was looking for opportunities to sort of bring uh, this guy into into the fold, right? Because after Stalin's death, Khrushchev was looking. You know, there was a lot of jockeying for power and and the opposition to khrushchev was trying to make hay out of the fact that that khrushchev had waged some pretty brutal efforts in the far western parts of ukraine to crush these counter-revolutionaries as they would call them so 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 there's i mean there's there's a direct series of historical ties to the present moment here like the movement of 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 ukraine of crimea from russia to ukraine was a Cold War era maneuver, and that the Ukrainians have a long tradition of resistance to the Soviets and to the communists. I think even during the Leninist period, that there were white Russians that were like gained tremendous strength out of out of the Ukraine. So there's there's a long anti-Soviet, and of course Putin is a Soviet man through and through. So he's he's tap his rhetoric is tapping into 
a line of argument that the communists and the Soviets would use against Ukrainian opponents for a long. It makes zero sense to us in the West. Right. But 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 it does have a currency in in Russia um, as for essentially justification. Yeah, unifying their yeah, people. Right. Right. Now, okay. again, it's ludicrous to us, but okay. but there's I'm not saying they're fascist. I'm just saying that they're anti-Russian, anti-Soviet. And I think the Russians who are hearing the rhetoric are, are interpreting his rhetoric in that way. That is anti-Russia. Because I, I heard that denazify Ukraine. And then I'm looking, I'm like, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky is Jewish. So what the fuck are they talking about? I'm like, <laughs> the president's Jewish. How are you denazifying by removing the power base? I again, I didn't get it, but I appreciate the explanation now. I understand. Yeah, and 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 it's a, and it's another instance where it, it, you know sometimes when you're trying to wage an argument like this, you have to resort to absurd lengths, right? So part of the contradiction in Putin's argument about how Ukraine doesn't really exist; it's really just you know, brother Russians and that Russia's existence stems from, you know, the Kievan Rus in the 900 AD or whatever the hell it was, right? <laughs> if you're saying that these people are not really Russian, I mean, they're not really Ukrainian and Ukraine has no right to exist. And then you're simultaneously asking your soldiers to kill these people, right? There's a contradiction there, right? I mean, you know, I mean, it'd be one thing if, if, if Joe Biden decided that he was going to wage war to, to depose the governor of Texas, you know, if that were happening. Right. I mean, how can you say that Texans aren't really, you know, that Texans aren't really Texans are really Americans, but that simultaneously you're sending Americans to kill Americans. That doesn't make sense. Right. Right. The only way out of that logical contradiction is to argue that the Texas government has somehow been captured by horrible villains, you know, and that the ordinary Texans are not really terrible people. They're just innocent dupes, you know, and, well, and you know, if Biden wants to denazify Florida and overthrow the governor, sign me up. <laughs> <Same>. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. so, so it, well, it, it, it's a it's a strange pickle that P Putin has put himself into. Yeah. And again, I mean, it's the it's crafting a narrative that is getting pumped on every, you know, Russian state news outlet, you know, to try to create a story, you know, that, like I said, the narrative of the rescuers, and this is the noble, you know, patriotic thing to do while you like, but like you said, Andy, it simultaneously creates these moral contradictions of like, wait, I'm all right. Can you walk me through this again? <laughs> Wait, let me have another drink and then explain it one more time. Right, right. I'm really sure. Uh, uh, I, yes, sir. Go I, ahead. I was just going to say one other thing is that, you know, one of the Achilles heel here for Putin is not just the financial, but the casualties. Right. Putin has gone to enormous lengths, even to date, to disguise the extent of Russian casualties to the Russian people. Uh and so, I mean, the, the best thing we can be doing, in my view, is just flooding the zone with as many javelins and, and, and stinger missiles as the Ukrainians could take possession of without them falling into bad hands. You know, but I mean, it, as long as they can keep killing Russians, even if they have to surrender territory, you know, when it, when 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 families no longer hear from mm -hmm. their loved ones and they disappear, you know, I, I don't I don't know what kind of propaganda Putin provides to families that lose a loved one in, in combat, you know, but 
that he can't keep that a secret forever. I mean, if you suddenly have a son or, you know, who's, who's a soldier and suddenly you stop hearing from him and it's six months go by, I mean, you're going to assume he's dead, you know? And, uh, you know, they, they didn't all get captured, you know? And, and one thing the Ukrainians are doing, I saw some uh, where the Ukrainians actually captured a couple of hundred Russians so far. And the Ukrainians have very shrewdly let their soldiers that they captured call their parents to tell them that they were captured and that they're all right. That, that's brilliant on their part. Mm-hmm. You, you know, know, I mean, that is absolutely brilliant. Putin's sitting in Moscow going, no Russian has died ever. <laughs> you know, it's like, right. And, and yet and yet those soldiers may very well unscripted explain to their parents that, that they have survived, but their friends died like that. That's a, another way of like getting and bypassing the propaganda machine and talking directly to the Russian people through the voices and mouths of the soldiers themselves that have been captured. So there's some very interesting things going on here. I, I, that was, I mean, that idea that would never have occurred to me, you know, I mean, normally it would be considered like a massive OPSEC violation to hand to a captured soldier, a cell phone, what them call their parents, you know, but in retrospect, it's brilliant. It's a whole yeah. different war out there, isn't it? And, and do you think that Putin didn't take that into account? Because that's what it feels like. I, I just think he's so far removed from that level that it. it I mean, he's not dumb, but I think he just didn't care and didn't expect it to be a factor. I mean, the man's been in the Kremlin, like I said, for, you know, what, two decades plus. Um, he's he's used to being the smartest, you know, uh, one in the room by design or just by the fact Was nobody it, else will open their mouth. You know, Is it <laughs> smartest or loudest? I, I mean, he, you know. He, he orchestrates that. I mean, everything is, is deliberate. Like his dressing down of like the intelligence chief, you know, that meeting in the huge ass room where like his, you know, equivalent of a cabinet is like 50 yards away from him in this big circular room. <laughs> just, you know, so I don't, I, you know, to your point, Haas, I just don't know. Like, I just don't, I, I think it's like a nuisance level thing for him that in this modern day matters. Cause to Andy's point, you know, you can only mass casualties to such an extent before families start getting news. And and I know the Russian Minister of Defense admitted to casualties. I just don't. That's all I can see. I don't see the details of what they said. Are they our casualties? No, they're Ukrainian. We're good. Well, and, you know, and it's it's the same pattern like back in Syria, you know, when we killed the, you know, 300 ish, uh, you know, Wagner group um, paramilitary. Can- contractors because that was the whole idea was if they're contractors who's going to give a shit right you know and then 300 of them didn't come home and it's like well there's about 300 families that gave a shit yeah exactly <laughs> look i think if we've learned anything from the last well i won't say the last four years but the the four previous years of a presidential administration when the truth doesn't serve you you just make it up you mm-hmm. know somebody out there is going to believe you and I imagine that's probably a lot of what happens in Russia. Uh, Andy, your point is taken. Like there are families out there that they know they have soldiers and loved ones on the ground. And if they die, they're going to be asking questions. But ultimately, I, you know, Grinch, to your point, I don't think Putin cares. It just happens to be an inconvenience at the moment and he'll figure out how to deal with it or he'll ignore it. Yeah. yeah. You can ignore a few hundred, but if you, right. my point is, is that, Every one of those families, through the power of Kevin Bacon, 
you know, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, so, so there's like a quantum difference between 800 deaths and 1600 deaths, right? Cause it, right. there's a X factor of six or whatever the number is, you know, that, that is causing those families to talk to other families. And Putin can't control that, you know? So, so that, that is why he's taken such great lengths to mass the casualties. There's one other thing I wanted to bring up here that, that I, I don't know if our leaders are really fully appreciating. Uh, and I don't think the American public but that is, I think that Belarusia is a, an Achilles' heel for for Putin that hasn't gotten a lot of press, right? But that th- they've allowed the Russians to do a springboard invasion, right? They're, in my view, the gloves should come off, and we should be hitting Belarus with everything there is, like cyber war, you know, like turning back convoys of trucks and and. You know, preventing stuff from going to the port. I mean, we should be able to do have our way with Belarus with no fear, right? Put every screw to Lukashenko, who who's now a complete puppet of Putin, mm. right? Whereas, notwithstanding the fact that he was a jerk, he actually did try to maintain Belarusian independence for most of his terms in office. You know, and I would argue that if you turn the screws as tight as they could possibly go on Belarus, that that there could be unrest that we could unleash faster in Belarus than would be in Russia itself. And then if, if Lukashenko's position is undermined, there could be another color revolution that could come out of that, you know, and that would either force Putin to send more Russian troops to do sort of a Prague 1968 maneuver to just take direct control. Or if a color revolution did kick off in Belarus, it would cut off the Russian supply lines. And that, because that's the supply line that is supporting their offensive on Kiev itself, you know. So it seems to me, militarily and strategically, that Belarus is the underbelly. You know, they're the Italy. You know, the, to, to, to use Thor's comments earlier of of the of the Axis. You know, that that's who you can turn, in my view, if you do the, if you play it right. And and if they lose that as a sanctuary, that significantly reduces the Russians' capacity to keep threatening Kiev itself. Andy, have you written a memo? <laughs> no, I, no. I, I, I no, but but I, I really hope that somebody smarter than me has figured this shit out. Well, it's funny. I can't find it. Uh, I I've only seen one reference to sanctions that also affect uh, Belarus um, and their role. And I was just scrolling through the series of updates, and I couldn't find it. But I've only seen one reference so far to some sanctions also affecting them. Well, I guess ultimately we're going to see how this plays out in the days, weeks, and months to come. Cause I, I don't imagine this will be over sh- quickly, but hopefully it will get resolved in a meaningful time frame and with as few casualties as possible, at least to everybody except Russia. Cause you know, they did fucking start it. So, you know, it is what it is. You have to accept a certain amount of retribution for your actions. There are consequences. Uh, Andy, Thank you so much for being here. Uh, it sure you know, Obviously, we ran long, but I don't care because everything that we talked about was absolutely worth it and necessary. I'm sure people have heard plenty over the last week. And, uh, you know, we're just another voice in the conversation. So I do appreciate everybody being here as usual. Andy, thank you for coming on. Andy, it was so great having you back absolutely. on. Oh, sure thing. Uh, hopefully that Polish beer was was yummy. On number two. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> I, uh, I, I did happen to see here, you know, Belarus constitutional referendum vote worries NATO. Constitutional changes seen as tight, 
tightening Lukashenko's grip. So oh, apparently they, they must be worried as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think the Russians are gearing up out of this thing to try to incorporate Belarusian. I mean, they're, they're going to try to just incorporate them outright into Russia, I think. Mm-hmm. They can have them. I don't care. No. But, uh, you know, as always, I appreciate you guys week in and week out being here giving me your hot takes and your perspective on all of the topics that we discuss here. Uh, if you'd like, please go out to our website, aspirateddebate.com. Check out all the drinks that we have here. You can check out all of our episodes in the vaults. Feel free to drop us a line, or you can go to our email address at the four horsemen at aspirateddebate.com. And that's four F O U R as Haas always likes to point out for us. It is spelled out. It is not the number, the four horsemen at aspirateddebate.com. Uh, gentlemen, as always, I love doing this week in and week out. Thank you so much for being here. And we will do this again next week. information or opinions expressed during the A Spirited Debate podcast series or any affiliated podcast are solely those of the hosts or guests involved and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the hosts or guests may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated. While guests are invited to listen, listeners acknowledge that they are not being provided professional advice for the podcast or its guests. The content within the parameters of A Spirited Debate podcast series or any affiliated podcast are for entertainment and educational purposes only. Any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual.